Luke chapter 12 this morning. As we continue to make our way chapter by chapter through uh, the book of Luke, we come once again this morning to one of Jesus' teaching passages here in the book of Luke. There are several uh, sections of Luke that are consumed with Jesus' teachings. And we come to one of those here. I believe it's the third section of Jesus' teachings that we've encountered so far in, in the book of Luke. And, and this morning, Jesus is going to teach us about a temptation that all of us in this room are subject to. In fact, let me go ahead and tell you this morning, if what we are speaking about today, if you have the automatic reaction of, well, that doesn't apply to me, let me go ahead and warn you, it applies mostly to you. If you automatically, upon hearing these things, say, well, I don't have a problem with that, you have a problem with that. And so we're going to ask the Lord to help us to see ourselves rightly and to see what he's offering us in his grace this morning. Let's go ahead and read the scriptures and then we'll see what the Lord has for us. If you could stand in honor of God's word this morning, we're going to read the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 12. And the word of the Lord says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that, that they were trampling one another, he, he being Jesus, began to say to his disciples first. So picture it. The crowds are gathered so many that they are trampling on one another. It's mass chaos. And instead of addressing the crowds, who does Jesus turn his attention to? His disciples, and namely those 12 disciples that would later be called apostles. What does he say to them? He says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell." Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. We've heard that before, right? He knows the number of hairs upon our head. That's where it's found right here in Luke chapter 12. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, Jesus says, acknowledge who, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated together. Father, we have opened your word this morning. 
And now would you lead us to submit ourselves to you. Give us ears to hear. Change our thinking. Lead us in repentance. Grow our faith. We are utterly dependent upon you for these things. We come before you asking that you would do what only you can do. So draw us near, Father, and may we leave this place changed. Your word is powerful. God is in truth today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the disciples' job description. What is the job description of somebody who follows Jesus Christ? In the beginning of that job description, we talked about a primary role that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is that of prayer. So last week, we focused in on prayer and the reality that a follower of Jesus is a prayer warrior. If we're going to follow Jesus right, it's going to re require us to live in utter dependence upon him in those sweet pathways of prayer. And today we're going to come to what I'm referring to as the disciples' confidence. Where does our confidence come from in following Jesus Christ? He's promised us that following him will not be easy. He has promised us that following him will mean persecution and trouble and difficulty he has never promised us that following him will lead to health and wealth and happiness in this life. Now, some of us may enjoy those things, but by and large, we find that life in a sin-saturated world is going to be difficult. And so we come to the scriptures this morning, and we find a difficulty that all of us find ourselves at various times and in various ways struggling with this particular temptation. It's described in Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I want you to think about a snare for a moment. I'm picturing in my mind a bear trap. One of those things that's spread wide with a spring there in the middle and if you were to come upon a bear trap in the woods, the last thing that you're going to do is stick your foot in it, right? I hope so. If you're that dumb, we need to go back to a different sermon this morning. But hopefully none of us in this room are going to say, yeah, I'm going to see a bear trap in the woods. I'm going to go stick my, my foot or my arm in there and just see what happens. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to lose your foot. Don't do that. No one seeks to get caught in a snare. A snare is always hidden. And that's what he's showing us here this morning in the Word, is that there is a snare, the snare called the fear of man, that we can easily say, well, I would never fall into that snare. I would never be caught in that trap. But all of us are subject because it is a hidden trap that we can easily fall into. And the solution is found in the second part of that verse. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We'll come to that here in a little bit. As we talk about the fear of man this morning, I want to recommend to you a resource. Now, the best resource that we have is the Word of God. 
bar none. But I want to recommend to you another book this morning that's been so helpful in my life as one who, whose life has been captivated by people-pleasing for so many years of my life. This book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small, and, and the subtitle of that book is Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. Ed Welsh is a Christian psychologist, and this is a very powerful, easy read. It may be 200 pages, but the print's big. You can make it through it, and it is such a great help in understanding this particular temptation that we're seeing Jesus talk about here in Luke chapter 12 that we are all subject to, the fear of of man. So let's talk about what fear means in a biblical sense. Ed Welch said this. He said, fear in the biblical sense, it, while it includes being afraid of someone, like horror movie fear, it's much more than that. While it includes being afraid of someone, it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, idolizing them, if you will, putting your trust in people or needing people. Let me summarize Ed Welch's book for you in one simple sentence that he gives, and it's this. As we grow in Christ, we are learning to love people more and to need them less. Now, let me explain to you. For some of you are going, no, wait a minute. That sounds like you said two contradictory things. Because we live in a culture that ties together love and need. So years ago, there was this movie, Jerry Maguire, where Tom Cruise made this famous statement to his love interest, you complete me. Subtitle, I need you to fill in the gap in my life that's there. I, can't, I need you. And, he, and that was a demonstration he so thought of love. But here's the problem when love and need are married. When we marry love and need in our lives, we end up destroying love. You think about the love of God. Is the love of God for us such as it is because he needs us? I hope you would say this morning, no, the Lord God Almighty needs nothing and no one. He is self-sufficient in and of himself. He is the ultimate definition of self-sufficiency. So he does not love us because he needs us. And so if we're going to learn to love as he loves, we've got to divorce love and need. We've got to learn to love people more while needing them less. I think that's what Jesus is showing us here in the word of God. So let's look at it this morning. Verses 1 through 3, Jesus begins with the warning to the frauds. Again, picture this moment. The crowds are gathering so much so thousands upon thousands of them are gathered together so much so that they're trampling on each other. It's like Black Friday gone bad here at the ministry of Jesus. They are running each other over to get close to Jesus. And you would think in that moment that Jesus would turn his attention to the crowds and say, hey, hey hold on, i got time for everybody. Y'all chill out. There's, there's plenty of me to go around. No, he, he ignores the crowd. And in that moment, turns his attention to his disciples. I think, well, that sounds kind of heartless. But you see... As we begin to think about the fear of man, 
The fear of man is grounded in the thought that what the crowd thinks is the most important. And Jesus was not driven by the fear of man. He was driven by love for his Father in such a way that he was able to look away from the crowd and look to those that the Father had given him. Remember what he says to his disciples, you are the ones my Father has given me. He was able to ignore the crowd and look to his disciples and bring them a word that would transform their lives and ours if we would have ears to hear. And so he says to them, "Do he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And you say, what in the world is that? I'm glad you asked. Jesus tells you. Just look at the word. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? Three words later, which is what? Hypocrisy. Now you think about the number one condemnation that's levied against the church in 21st century America today. I don't want to be a part of the church because the church is full of hypocrites. Now, I've told you in days past that there's a sense in which we need to just own that. And you say, well, what do you mean, pastor? Just to own that we're a bunch of hypocrites? Well, let's think about what hypocrisy is. Literally, the Greek word that Jesus used here means to wear a mask. Hypocrisy is when we wear a mask pretending to be something that we are not in reality. It's a word that comes from the theater of those days in the, in the Greek amphitheaters when they would come together for a play, for a dramatic presentation. Often the same actor would, would do multiple parts and in order to distinguish the different parts that he or she was playing, they would wear a different mask. And that's the picture of a hypocrite. One who wears a mask, pretending to be something that they're not in reality. Now there are two types of hypocrites that we need to distinguish this morning. The one is the type that Jesus warns the disciples about here, the type that the Pharisees were. The Pharisees represent the type of hypocrites that while their outward profession and their inward reality don't match up, they will never let on to anyone. Their greatest fear, the greatest fear of the Pharisee, of this type of hypocrite, is that they'll be found out. And so they do everything they can to make everyone else believe that their mask is the reality. That's one type of hypocrite. But the other type of hypocrite, and the one I would encourage you to be, is this. One who is not afraid to be unmasked. Who is not afraid to say, yes, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. One who is not afraid to recognize that apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you. No mask will hide you from his face. He knows the reality of our sin-stained hearts. He knows the depth of our rebellion against us, and yet he loves us anyway. That doesn't mean that our sin's okay. It's still hideous and filthy before him. But he comes pursuing us while we were yet sinners, while we were still wearing the mask, while we were still pretending to be something that we were not. Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to take off the mask of our hypocrisy. Instead, he came and did what we could not do. 
that the mask might be removed. Here's the problem with hypocrisy. It's very much like yeast and bread. It's both infectious and insidious. And I don't know how much experience that you have with yeast in, in, in the form of yeast in, in bread, but I remember one particular instance that happened years ago. Our church in, in Louisville had a food pantry, and once a month we would have folks that would come from all over the neighborhood. We were in the south end of Louisville, a very impoverished area, and we'd have folks from all over the neighborhood that would come and get a box of food from our church, and we, we got donations of food from all over, from folks in the church and other organizations that contributed to make this food pantry happen. And one time, we, we got a large donation, several dozen boxes of yeast rolls. And we didn't have enough space in the refrigerator to get all the yeast rolls in the refrigerator. And we were trying to figure out what we would do. And the janitor and, and I decided, well, we, we don't know what we can do right now, but we're going to go ahead and go to lunch. And, and when we come back, then we'll figure out what to do with these yeast rolls. Well... Uh, we went and, and ate at Ryan's Buffet, which he loved so well, and we forgot about the yeast rolls. We totally forgot about the fact that we had left six boxes of yeast rolls sitting on the church's kitchen counter. And so the next morning, if you know what happens when yeast and then when a yeast roll begins to heat up, that, that bread begins to expand. And so we came in the next morning, and it was like the blob from those old movies. If you, I don't know if you can even picture this in your mind, but the boxes were busted open, and there is, there is dough everywhere. It, had come, it was coming off the counter. It was the biggest mess that you've ever seen in your life, all because we forgot about the yeast rolls that were sitting there on the counter. Now, if you can picture that in your mind, hear Jesus say, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In the midst of these chapters, things between Jesus and the Pharisees were beginning to heat up. He was more and more trying to show them the reality of their hypocrisy. In the last chapter, he gives several woes to them, and one of them he said to them, Pharisees, I want to warn you, you're like whitewashed tombs. You, you look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death. The, the outward mask that you're trying to portray to the world does not match up with the inward reality, and you're so intent on maintaining the mask, and it's going to lead you straight to death. And in between, it's going to cause an enormous mess in your lives and in the lives of others. Yeast is both infectious and insidious. Insidious, and by that I mean you don't see it. You don't recognize it. It's that snare that we were talking about a moment ago. You, you don't recognize it for what it is. You may say this morning, well, I don't have a problem with the fear of man. The moment that you say that, I would say to you this morning, the moment that you say that, your foot is already in the snare. There's no temptation that's not common to man. All of us are tempted in this way to care more about what other people think than we do about what God thinks. To be wrapped up in the opinions of others. To be consumed with thoughts about what others think about us and how they would respond to us. We, we worship the opinions of others so easily while we discard the truth that God has shown us. But one day, Jesus said, our disguises will be destroyed. This is the ridiculousness of hypocrisy. 
He said, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. The mask will be destroyed one day. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark, it shall be heard in the light. What you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What's he saying here? He's saying God is omniscient. He knows everything. And yet, like Adam and Eve, we seek to hide from him. Remember, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first thing they did? They tried to hide from the Lord. How ridiculous is it to try to hide from an all-knowing God? And Jesus is saying there's going to come a day when everything that we've been trying to hide will be revealed. I want you to imagine this morning what it would be like if the worst, most despicable thoughts that you had had this past week were put up on this big screen with your picture. You may want to sign up for that deal. You say, Pastor, if we're going there, I ain't coming back next week. By the way, your pastor wouldn't be here next week either. <laughs> what if the things that you've done in secret were put on full display? Who you are when nobody else is around. You see, the nature of the sinner, and we are all sinners in need of a Savior, the nature of the sinner is we wear masks. We pretend to be that which we are not in reality. We put on a good show, but the show is just a show. Amen. And so Jesus is drawing us into something far better. 2 Corinthians 5.10 we must all appear. He didn't say might or could. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The most important date on your future calendar is the day when you will stand before the Lord God Almighty in the judgment seat of Christ and you will have to give an account for your life. There is no greater day. I don't care if you have a wedding day coming up. There's no greater day. I don't care if, you have, if, you're, if you're having a child being born. There's no greater greater day on any of our calendars in this room than the day when we will stand before the Lord God Almighty and have to give an account for the life that he gave us. And Jesus is saying all will be revealed in that day. And so continuing to wear the mask really doesn't make a lot of sense. He shifts gears in verse 4 and begins to talk about the warring of two fears. So on the one hand, we have the fear of man. On the other hand, we have the fear of God. And listen to once again to what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. What's he saying there? He's saying, you think about what is the worst that another person could do to you? You say, well, they could kill me. By the way, remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to his disciples here, all but one of which would give their lives for being a follower of Jesus. Peter would be crucified upside down. James would be thrown down the steps of the temple and then beaten to death with clubs. Only John didn't become a martyr, though they tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He just kept living. And he's saying to them, think about it, guys. What's the worst another person can do to you? You say, well, they could kill me. 
He said, there's something worse than that. There's something worse than that. And he gives it to us right in the next verse. There's something worse than death. He said, I'm warning you. I want to warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. By the way, he ain't talking about the devil here. The devil has no authority to cast anyone to hell, into hell. He himself will be cast into hell, the Bible promises. He has no authority to cast anyone into hell. He's talking about the Lord God Almighty here. He is talking about God and saying, you, might, you, you may be so worried about that someone else might take your life. That's the worst that they could do. By the way, aren't we fearful for much smaller things? We're worried that somebody might laugh at us. They might change their opinion of us. All, I know we, I deal with the same kinds of things. But what Jesus is saying, the worst they can do is kill you. God has far more authority. Here's the reality, church. First of all, the one who fears God need fear no one else. That's what Jesus is saying right here. So what he's saying to you this morning is your life does not have to be captivated by the fear of man. You don't have to live your life constantly considering the opinions of others. You don't have to live your life in that way. And for those of us that have lived the majority of our lives as people pleasers or as codependents or, or recognize that and say this and say, yeah, that's me. And you think, how could I do anything different? Jesus is showing you what the path to doing something different is. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice what he's saying here. This is just the beginning of the first step. To walking in the wisdom of God is recognizing the foolishness of the fear of man in an ultimate sense and the wisdom of the fear of God. And so we can pray, Father, may I learn less and less to fear others and more and more to fear you. May I think less and less of the opinions of others and more and more of the truths that you revealed to me. May my life be consumed less and less with what others think and feel and their, all the things that they put upon me. And may I be more and more consumed with what my Heavenly Father thinks and how He's responded to me in love. Why is the fear of man such a huge issue? I think it's because we have a mistaken understanding of where true value lies. Where does our worth come from? This is why Jesus transitions right here. I want you to see it. After talking about the fact that, that God has the authority to, to do something worse than death and casting into hell those who continue to live in rebellion against him. And then he, gets, he shifts in verse 6. And it seems kind of strange at first, but I want, to see, I want you to see the connection. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Well, now we're talking about birds. Where did this come from? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's he talking about here? He's trying to help us to see and be reminded of where our value really lies. For those of us that are so tempted with regularity to measure our value in terms of our reflection in the eyes of other people. 
Whether it's our spouse or our boss or our children or our friends, wherever it is that we find ourselves seeking to measure ourselves in the eyes of others, he said, let me show you where your true value lies. Biblically, here is where your worth is found. Your true worth is found in creation and in the cross. Genesis 1.27 says, In the very beginning, when God created mankind, He created them male and female in His image. In the image of God, He created them. You have inherent worth because you were created in the image of Almighty God and given the task by Almighty God of reflecting His glory in the creation. That's why David can write in Psalm 139 that, he, that God knit us together in our mother's womb. He didn't just throw a bunch of pieces and parts together in the womb. No, that word knit is an intricate, it's a, it's a tapestry, it's a masterpiece. Every one of us in this room, every person has an inherent worth because they are created by the hand of God. Before you had done one thing outside of the womb, you had worth inside of the womb. That's why we as Christians should be upholding the rights of the unborn because they're created in the image of God to display His glory and we have no right to destroy what God has knit together. But we also have worth because of the cross. Don't ever forget that God demonstrated His love for you in this that while you were yet sinning against God living in active rebellion against Him and God knew all the rebellion that we would commit in our lives. All the sin that would so easily entangle us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You don't think that you have worth before Almighty God? You keep looking into the eyes of others to serve as a mirror to show you how much you're worth? And your creator says, let me show you how much you are loved. Let me show you how much value you have in my kingdom. My perfect son who knew no sin, there was no rebellion in him. He took all of your sin upon himself so that you could see the gravity of my love for you. By the way, what you need is not more self-esteem. Self-esteem is a snare just like the fear of man. What you need is to esteem this God who says your worth is found in the fact that I created you in my image and I bought you with the blood of my son. And if that's not enough, will I not also give you all the things that are part of my kingdom as your inheritance? Find your worth there. By the way, church, Galatians 1.10 gives us a great means for evaluating where we are. In every moment, you can ask the question of Galatians 1.10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? For many of us, we live so much of our lives seeking the approval of others. We're seeking the approval of that father that never told us that he loved us. We're seeking the approval of that mother that was, that was verbally abusive. 
We're seeking the approval of those friends that fled from us all throughout our school years. We're seeking the approval of a spouse that we thought was going to complete us, and yet we are still experiencing an emptiness because we were looking for them to be something that God had never intended them to be. If I were still trying to please man, Paul writes, I would not be a servant of Christ. That may sound harsh to us. But Jesus himself said, you can't serve two masters. You, you, you can't live your life for these two mirrors. One, seeking to measure yourself through the eyes of this world. And one, seeking to measure yourself through the eyes of this God. Which will it be? Finally this morning, let's talk about what does the walk of the faithful then look like? Jesus lays it out for us in verses 8 through 12. What does the walk of the faithful then look like? And so he says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. The one who denies me before men will also be denied before the angels of God. Now we're, we're quick sometimes to jump to the second part, the warning. We know that if you deny Christ before men, he's going to deny you before the angels of God. That literally means before God and in heaven, your name won't be mentioned. Jesus in Matthew 7 says, there will be some who he will say to them in that day, depart from me, I never knew you. That's one of the scariest passages in all of the Bible. But he, so we're quick to jump to, well, you know, if you deny Jesus before men, he's going to deny you before the Father. But don't jump there until you look at the promise that begins this passage. Notice what he says. Think about this for a moment. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, who literally names my name before men, the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. What a promise! What a promise! That your name will be mentioned before the throne of God above as you walk in faithfulness in this redeemed life that He has bought you and brought you into. What an amazing promise. What is that saying to us? It means this, that because of Christ, we are accepted by Almighty God. And so here's what we do. We flit here and there. We run around all of our lives looking for acceptance in other people. Looking for someone else to tell me that I'm valuable, that I'm worthwhile, that I have something to contribute. We look for it in our parents, in our teachers, in our coaches, in our significant others, in our, in our spouses. We look for it in our bosses. All over the place, we're looking. Somebody say to me that, that I'm worthwhile. That I have value. And the God who created you in his image is looking at you and saying, You have worth because I said so. Amen. So stop looking to the mirror of this world to tell you what I'm already telling you. You're worthwhile because I say so. You're valuable because I say so, and I proved it when I gave my, the life of my son for you at the cross. Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access 
acceptance, entrance into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you have this, then all the accolades of the world measure up to nothing in comparison. Paul says, I count it all as rubbish in comparison with knowing Christ. All the degrees, all the accolades, all the successes, all the trophies, all the times that my name was written in the lights, I count it all as dung, as garbage, as nothing in comparison with knowing Christ. Because he began to understand this is where my worth is found. We were accepted by the Almighty. That's the first step of the faithful. The second is this. The reminder that we were bought by the blood of Christ. Again, see your worth in this. That he who knew no sin of his own, who had never once rebelled against his father, took all of your sin upon himself at the cross. So that in him you might become the righteousness of God. He didn't leave us in some kind of spiritual neutral zone between sin and righteousness. He brought us all the way home and clothed us in his righteousness to remind us of God's favor on us. We were bought by the blood. So Jesus says something kind of strange here, but I want you to see it. Verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And there's been all kinds of talk over the years about what people will refer to as the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? Now the Catholic Church would teach an unforgivable sin is suicide. The Bible nowhere says that. There will be other churches that would teach, well, the unforgivable sin is if you say these certain words, that will be unforgivable. It's not what the Bible's saying here. What is the Bible saying? Well, first of all, don't run to the warning before you run to the promise. The promise is this. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So here's what I want you to think about. Think about what Jesus said on the cross to those who were hurling insults at him, spitting upon him. What did Jesus say? He didn't say, you'll get yours. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus is not one to offer false forgiveness. You remember that day when the friends lowered their lame friend down through the ceiling on a mat because the house was so crowded and Jesus zeroed in on their friend and the first thing he said to the man was brother your sins are forgiven and the Pharisees are all of us who is this that's trying to forgive sins and we know only God can forgive sins and Jesus knowing their thoughts he said yeah we all know only God can forgive sins but so that you'll know what's really going on here hey dude take up your mat and walk go ahead pick it up walk on out of here Jesus was not denying his divinity. He said, let me, he said, let me show you which is more difficult to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk to a man who's never walked before. He, he recognized, he was showing us so very clearly that, that our greatest need is for the forgiveness of God. Only God has the right to forgive sins because ultimately all sin is an offense against God. Yes, sin does 
huge damage and destruction to our horizontal relationships with one another. But ultimately, sin is rebellion against a holy God. And only God can rectify what we have broken. Only He can redeem the debt. We were bought by the blood. And so then what is then this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is He talking about here? Well, you need to go back a chapter before. We're not going to linger long here, but I don't want to leave you wondering what is this about. In the chapter before, Jesus is casting out a demon. There's a man whose life was racked with demon possession, and Jesus comes along and casts this demon out of the man. And the religious leaders come along in that moment and say, he only casts out demons by the power of Satan. The only way he can do this is he casts out demons by the power of Satan. This isn't the power of God you're seeing. This is the power of the devil on display. And Jesus just simply says, what sense does that make? Why does Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Why would Satan cast him out, his own self out? That doesn't make any sense. And by the way, by whom did the Old Testament prophets that you guys seem to worship so much, who did they cast out demons by? If I'm casting them out by Satan, you're saying that Moses and all the prophets, they did the same kind of stuff. Their wonders were satanic as well. He's saying, no, this is the power of God on display for you. So what then is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? If we had time, we could dive in. There's a lot we could dive into in other scriptures. But let me just sum it up for you in this way. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not so much ultimately about words that are spoken like we might fear, if I were to say this one thing, like God could never forgive that. If I were to do this one thing, like God could never forgive that. No, ultimately the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is tied into what the rest of the New Testament teaches, and it's this. The only unforgivable sin is continuing in unbelief and rejection of Jesus Christ unto your dying breath. It is a settled opposition to his kingship in your life such that you will not turn from your sin and you will not trust in Christ. The only unforgivable sin is dying in your sin and refusing to trust God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I want you to hear that this morning. The only sin that God Almighty will not forgive is if you continue until your dying breath in opposition to Him and will not submit yourself to Him as Savior and Lord. Because you are rejecting in that moment your own salvation. You are rejecting the pathway that God has made for you to be redeemed. And for God to forgive you in that moment would be to spit upon His own Son and crucify Him all over again. He died once for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be brought to God through repentance and faith. And so Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Finally this morning, 
the walk of the faithful. We've been accepted by the Almighty. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. And now we have confidence in Christ. So again, I would say to you this morning, you don't need more self-esteem. The self-help section at Barnes & Noble is not going to fix what ails you. In fact, it's likely to make it much worse. Because the more we think that better thoughts about ourselves are going to fix what's wrong with us, the more we're missing the picture. It's not thoughts about us that are going to fix it. It's thoughts about Him. It's the truth of God's Word. When He's saying to you today, you have worth because I say you have worth. I created you in my image to reflect my glory. And if that wasn't enough, I paid the price for your redemption by the blood of my Son at the cross. And if that's not enough, I want you to see that all the inheritance, all the riches of glory in Christ Jesus are yours because of what Jesus did for you at the cross. What is God saying? I love you. I love you. I love you. Will you take him in his word today? I'm going to close with Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to have a little three points in a poem here in just a moment. It's a good sermon. Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So let me ask you this, church. Did Jesus struggle with the fear of man? Did Jesus struggle with the temptation to bow down to the whims of the crowds and to measure himself in the eyes of other people rather than in the eyes of his heavenly Father? Read the text. Yes. And therefore, he can speak in to our existence and say, I know what you're dealing with. I know your struggles. I know your wrestlings. I've been there. And I want to help you as only I can because he's the only one that's encountered this temptation and not engaged in sin as a result. So let us then have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Again, this is not self-confidence. This is Christ's confidence. This is seeing what he did for us. This is seeing his grace. This is seeing the demonstration of God's glory in him and recognizing now I can draw near to the throne of grace. I can find God's mercy and grace to help me in my time of need. I can go to him when I am tempted to measure myself in the eyes of others and I can be reminded by him this is how much you're worth to me and I can find my solace and sufficiency there. So let's close with a poem this morning. Keith and Christine Getty, many of you know them as the writers of In Christ Alone, one of our favorite hymns around here. It's, it's just such a, I believe that's one we're going to be singing in heaven because it's just so powerful. But they wrote a, another song a couple of years ago that's a little less known, but it's so fitting for today. And I'm not going to sing it because my voice is half gone already. But I want to read you these words. It's called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And I want to ask you before we read this, where are you finding your worth? Where are you looking for? What are you looking for in terms of measuring up? The sin-stained heart is constantly looking to find worth and value. Where are you looking for it? Listen to these words. 
My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. So I will rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. I want you to hear this last verse. This is so powerful. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross.